Congressman Mike Gallagher discusses China and the Indo-Pacific with Defense News Capitol Hill reporter Bryant Harris. Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. You know, of the $106 billion, there's really only $2 billion geared towards Taiwan. That's woefully insufficient. I mean, honestly, that's kind of a joke. As China becomes increasingly aggressive, Gallagher is looking at how to best deter and prepare for a possible conflict in the region. What does it mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is November 6th, 2023. To start off with, the China Committee advanced a series of bipartisan uh, recommendations to the House uh, this spring. It included a lot of recommendation, you know, fixing the $19 billion Taiwan arms sale backlog established in the Taiwan Reserve stockpile, multi-year's munitions procurement, um, cybersecurity legislation with Taiwan, just to name a few. I know the cybersecurity bill is on the NDAA, but uh, can I get your assessment of kind of where the House is with a lot of these recommendations and what more work needs to be done? I think the latest count was that seven of the 10 in our attempt for Taiwan had some form of representation in NDAA. Obviously, NDAA is not yet done. Um, I'm a conferee, so my hope is that we can keep it 7 of 10 in NDAA, or at least make meaningful progress therein. There's some things like multi-year procurement and appropriation that need to be adjudicated via defense approach. That's a mixed bag right now. We obviously I haven't passed the defense appropriations bill either. I do think the supplemental is also an opportunity to advance in the direction of some of our recommendations. You know, of the 106 billion, there's really only $2 billion geared towards Taiwan. That's woefully insufficient. I mean, honestly, that's kind of a joke. Um, and it's not even, it's not even Taiwan specific. I, I assume because there were elements in the administration that didn't want to like anger China by sort of specifically saying $2 billion in FMF for Taiwan. What that might look like when Congress uh, starts to act is something more like $10 billion for the Indo-Pacific. So the $3.4 billion for the submarine industrial base related AUKUS is important. I support that. You can imagine $2 billion for Taiwan FMF, $2 billion for presidential drawdown authority, and let's say $5 billion for, you know, uh, Indo-PACOM, unfunded priorities combined with like the long range precision fires that are most relevant to uh, near term uh, deterrence. That's just like a rough sketch directionally where we're going. Mark Montgomery has written some persuasive analysis on this recently, as has, I just got this yesterday, uh, AI, Eric Sayers and Dustin Walker have outlined what I think is a more like reasonable Taiwan funding proposal that I think would have bipartisan support. In Congress. So that's what I'm hopeful for on that side. And then obviously we're still, you know, we have until the end of the year to finalize our other policy recommendations in other areas beyond military competition. did want to ask you about the supplemental. Sure. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, <clears throat> one related question to that, we have now seen um, presidential drawdown authority within the past year and a half, most for Ukraine, but also for Taiwan and now Israel. So the types of munitions we're sending are often different, but there is some overlap. For instance, we've sent Ukraine harpoons for drawdown, which need to be backfilled to yeah. U.S. stocks. Obviously, our industrial base has a lot of production um, constraints that are ongoing. So at what point can the U.S. military stockpiles no 
longer sustain this level of drawdown authority and uh, which region should get priority? The Indo-Pacific is our priority here. Um, and I don't, I don't mean that to suggest it's an either or choice because I believe we need to continue to uh, provide lethal assistance to Ukraine to help them beat the Russians. Uh, obviously, Israel's a, a priority as well, but the Indo-Pacific has to remain our top priority um, because a collapse of deterrence in Indo-PACOM would have the potential to make the ongoing wars in Ukraine and the emerging war in Gaza look tame in comparison. So we, we just have to prioritize the Indo-Pacific. One solution, which I unsuccessfully tried to push, what I'm hoping to revive, that I do think would re would rebuild our entire arsenal of deterrence, because what we have to do is, you know, move to maximum production rates of all the priority critical munitions and long-range precision fire. Then, honestly, my list probably looks similar to the list that Bill LaPlante would come up with uh, in the Pentagon. I mean, I might prioritize certain things. Elrasm would be at the top of the list. JASM, JADM-ER, SM-6 naval strike missile, et cetera, et cetera. But like you could agree on what the most critical munitions that you need to stockpile are, and then you'd have to move to maximum production rates and provide certainty over the course of the FIDIP. I had a bill called F the FIRES Act, which would use uh, appropriated but unexpended money that just disappears. We just lost $11 billion a month ago because DOD didn't spend the money. It goes into abeyance for five years in the treasury and then just like evaporates. We've lost $127 billion in the last decade. It's insane. It would have allowed DOD to use that money and, and put it into multi-year appropriations for critical munitions. Um, and there again, I just think we have an opportunity right now um, to, in a bicameral, bipartisan, and like intra-legislative executive branch way, make a generational investment in our ossified and broken munitions industrial base. We're not there yet, notwithstanding the brittleness of that base that Ukraine has revealed, but we can we can do it. We just got to get the prioritization right. On that note, um, you know, we've seen a lot of this function in the House over the last few weeks. We now have a new speaker, um, Congressman Mike Johnson. Dysfunction, what? You've <laughs> right. seen a lot of democracy in the last few weeks. <laughs> that, that's one way of putting it, yes. Um, I, I did want to note that the China Committee and the Armed Services Committee, which you, um, of course, sit on, they operate in a very bipartisan manner. And a lot of um, Republican defense hawks asked you to run for speaker during all the drama of the past three weeks, but um, you turned them down. Why didn't you want the job? Uh, I think my highest and best use to not just the, the Republican caucus, but dare I say the country, uh, is as chair of the select committee on the CCP and working on issues related to US-China competition and on the hard power component more specifically. I mean, that's my passion. Uh, my mission uh, that I've given myself in Congress is to uh, deter a war with China, prevent World War III. Uh, I think that's the most pressing national security challenge. And so I want to give that everything I got. And the speakership is quite honestly something I've never considered. Um, so though there were some in the press that liked sort of this narrative of reluctant congressmen from Wisconsin being, you know, recruited into the speakership, uh, for me right now, uh, my focus is on uh, winning this new Cold War with communist China. And that's how I think I can serve best. Okay. Um, and speaking of deterring China, just a few days ago, we saw Chinese Coast Guard ships ram uh, two Filipino vessels in the South no. China Sea. You said it's time for additional measures to support the U.S.-Philippines Defense Treaty, including helping establish a more secure and permanent foothold in the second Thomas Shoal. What does that look like and what do you think President Biden should be doing? Well, I do think um, at least half a billion dollars. Uh, so that we've talked about the supplemental before. There's some thinking that of the $2 billion in FMF, 
half a billion could be used for the Philippines, actually. So I think there's a way in which the supplemental could be used to increase our uh, defense partnership with the Philippines. I also think at a broader level, we need to make sure that the Marine Corps Commandant's or former Marine Corps Commandant's vision of having small teams of Marines armed with autonomous running around uh, southern Japanese and northern Philippine islands with autonomous JLTVs armed with naval strike missiles. It's like a really compelling vision. And I think would create serious dilemmas for PLA planners and really get inside their OODA loops. Uh, and right now, if you think about our standard forces, our biggest asymmetric advantage are is our submarines. Uh, but by adding that uh, in, in terms of our uh, standard forces, uh, things could get really exciting. And that's something we could accomplish within the next five years before you know the 2027 timeline emerges. So what basing and access agreements that that would require, um, I don't know right now. And I would actually give the administration credit for some of the basing and access agreements they've gotten with the Philippines and with Japan in recent years. It did seem like under the previous administration in the Philippines, they were sort of sliding out of our kind of orbit or, or the, the alliance was weakening and, and, and they were trending more towards the CCP direction. Now that seems to have changed and things are headed in a much better direction, but it's important that we maintain a presence there, that our, our funding is consistent and we look for every opportunity to expand that partnership. I do, I do like the fact that we're saying, you know, an attack uh, on Philippine forces in the second Thomas Shoal would trigger our mutual defense commitments. It's important that we signal that, but we got to be prepared to back that up. Right. And as the Biden administration expands basing agreement security cooperation with our Pacific allies, the Chinese talking point is that this is a quote unquote Cold War mentality. Um, you framed our relationship with China as a new Cold War. So does framing this relationship with China in Cold War terms make diplomacy and de-escalation more difficult? I don't think so. Well, first, um, my view uh, to clarify is that China and Russia have been waging Cold War against us for quite some time. In fact, you know, I'm sure just as historians continue to debate when the old Cold War began, right? Some say it was when Winston Churchill traveled to Fulton, Missouri and gave his Iron Curtain speech. Some say it started when Orwell first used the phrase in his you know, famous essay on the atomic bomb. You know, some say it's when the Soviets detonated a nuclear weapon in 1949 or when the Cold War turned hot in 1950 on the Korean Peninsula, whatever. I'm sure we'll have that same debate like 50 years from now when I'm sitting on my porch like drinking spotted cow as like an obscure uh, liberal arts professor in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, but like it at least started in 2012 when uh, having unsuccessfully tried to make like specious legal claims for uh, disputed territory re related to uh, the Philippines, China began its like aggressive and dare I say unprecedented island building campaign and militarization of that campaign. So like this has been going on for a long time and we can either recognize that fact and wage a counter effort aggressively or we can lose this thing because of our lack of urgency and ignorance. Um, this is not to say that the new Cold War is identical to the old. Uh, I find the analogy useful both for the similarities and the differences that it illuminates. Um, the similarities, I think, are obvious. This is a whole of society effort. It's going to require us to modernize our national security bureaucracy. And these are two, not just two militaries competing, but two separate ideologies and two separate ways of organizing uh, governments. Um, and so it's as much an ideological competition as it is a military economic competition. The economic side of it is where I think the differences uh, really emerge, right? We never had to contemplate some form of selective economic decoupling 
from the Soviet Union because our economies didn't interact. And that's what makes this, I think, more complex and in some ways more difficult than the old Cold War. We've woken up to the fact that we are unacceptably dependent on China for the production of certain things, critical goods. Certainly the pandemic was a wake up call in that respect, advanced pharmaceutical ingredients, um, critical mineral processing, take your pick, subcomponent parts for solar panels, electric vehicle batteries, figuring out how to wean ourselves off that dependency, restore some level of economic sovereignty, and, or at a minimum, stop fueling our own destruction by allowing the outflow of US capital to to China in certain advanced technological and, and military sectors, that to me is is a, the most complex part of this because we are we've become conjoined twins with China in so many areas after over two decades of trying to integrate them into the global economy. So that's a long, very long way of me saying that um, I find the framing helpful, but I'm not suggesting that this Cold War is like identical to the old Cold War. Yeah, uh, um, and we've seen the flurry of diplomacy in recent months. Oh, yeah, your question was about diplomacy. Sorry, I didn't answer. Oh, no, yeah, you yeah, answered yeah. it very well, actually. Uh, uh, this well, is but, a I mean, but, yeah, I don't think yeah. it makes it harder. My, and my, and listen, though, I've been critical of um, uh, the what I've called a zombie engagement by the Biden administration. The problem isn't like engaging in diplomacy per se. It is, it is pausing defensive action in order just to sit down at the table and talk with high level Chinese Communist Party officials. And then these talks seem to go on and on and on, or we commit to working groups and then nothing happens. And thus far, we've had multiple cabinet level officials go to Beijing with really nothing to show for it. And there are still some in the administration like John Kerry, who believe we have to pull our punches with respect to China because we don't want to anger them and thereby jeopardize their willingness to work with us at COP28 on reducing climate emissions. I just think that's a naive view of the world. I don't think Xi Jinping cares about commitments made at COP27 or 28. And I just want to make sure that when we are engaging in diplomacy, that it's backed by a credible military deterrent. And when those two things are disconnected, then we just, we get our lunch eaten by the CCP on the world stage. To quote Frederick the Great, I mean, diplomacy without arms is like music without instruments. It doesn't work. Yeah. And we also saw leader Schumer lead a bipartisan codel yeah. there recently. I take it from your answer. You're not necessarily inclined to do that yourself in this position. <laughs> well, you know, I'm actually genuinely interested in talking to the senators that went on that trip to hear how it went. I mean, I'd be curious if they thought it was productive or if it was just kind of like sitting in, you know, nondescript gray rooms, getting lectured by Wolf Warrior diplomats. Yeah. If the exchange with, he got an audience with Xi, right? He did, um, yes. If that was like a productive exchange. So I'm not like, uh, I'm not like hostile to the idea. I just, I, I would want it to actually be meaningful and productive. And there's some other trips to the Indo-Pacific that we have prioritized um, that we're trying to do, but the congressional schedule keeps changing because we depose speakers and then argue about it for weeks. So um, <laughs> once we have a more coherent schedule, then we can plan future trips. It's very far away, though. It's hard to get to. I don't know if you're aware of this fact. Yes, I went, I went to <laughs> that's Austra why I've never been. Yeah, I, I went to Australia in uh, in August. It's it's not easy to get there, particularly from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Yeah. So. Former Speaker McCarthy, um, before he was ousted, he kind of backed off his initial pledge to emulate Speaker Pelosi and visit Taiwan. He met President Tsai here in the U.S. 
um, after Pelosi's visit, China um, ratcheted up uh, drills around Taiwan, and they suspended fentanyl cooperation. Um, so do you think McCarthy made the right choice by meeting President Tsai here in the U.S. instead of in Taiwan? Well, first of all, on our, our, the previous question, I would want to ensure if I or anyone from the committee went to China that we could actually return uh, and that we wouldn't wind up in like a, a gulag somewhere in Xinjiang. Um, so that would that would be important. First of all, uh, I defended uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. I think it's entirely in keeping with precedent, uh, the intent of the Legislative Relations Act. Um, and, you know, I, I understand that the CCP uh, threw a fit about it, but they then threw a fit at the idea of President Tsai meeting with Speaker McCarthy and members of the committee on American soil. So no matter what we do, they'll claim it's a provocation. And so we can't be intimidated by that rhetoric. And I thought uh, former Speaker McCarthy handled the whole situation brilliantly. And honestly, for our committee, that trip out to California, where we met with President Tsai uh, at the Reagan Library in bipartisan fashion was incredibly powerful. Um, and um, Speaker McCarthy set a very bipartisan tone um, the interaction with President Tsai was very robust. It was meaningful. And I actually, so I actually thought that was a very good outcome. And separately, you know, I, I went to Taiwan uh, myself. Um, there are members of the committee that want to go to Taiwan. We're hoping to take the committee to Taiwan. And, and I think that will be a very useful thing uh, to do. But I, um, I, I actually I think McCarthy handled that about as well as you possibly could have handled it. Right. Thank you. And real quick, we like to ask all the people we interview for this issue what they're reading. So would you mind telling us about your Yeah, I have it here somewhere. I actually, I, I hate to admit it, but I, I had I had not yet read Rush Doshi's book, The Long Game. And so I am now about a third of the way through it. It's in my bag there for my plane, nice. my plane flight back. It's quite good uh, thus far, the way he organizes it. And, uh, and what else did I, I, I recently um, taught a course on the Korean War, uh, which was an opportunity to re-engage with a book that's been a favorite of mine for a long time called This Kind of War, which is a, a famous account uh, of the Korean War. And as you know, we just celebrated the 70th anniversary of the Armistice Agreement. And there's this kind of cult of the Korean War that's grown up, uh, that's sprouted in China. Xi Jinping repeatedly references Mao's brave decision to cross the Yalu. This is the last time we actually fought the communists on the on the battlefield. And so, I, and it obviously an instance where a Cold War turned hot and deterrence failed and a lot of our mistaken assumptions played out. And we had a military that was unprepared because we were disarming after World War II. So I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the Korean War. So that book and now Rush Doshi's book and then I try and alternate serious books with some like trashy uh, detective novels or science fiction nice. too. There's a great, there's a great uh, like uh, noir-ish detective writer called Robert Cray who writes these uh, Elvis Cole and Joe Pike uh, detective novels, which I, I love right now. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com slash EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at Military Times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode features stories by Brian Harris. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruse. Have a great day. 